0: Welcome to the Corecast, where we interview Jewish leaders and discuss issues relevant to the Jewish community in Canada and around the world. I'm your host, Richard Rabkin. Welcome, Corecast listeners. I have the special privilege of having Rabbi Seth Grauer with me today. Rabbi Grauer is the head of school and Rosh Hashiva of Bnei Akiva Schools in Toronto, Yeshivat ur and Upanat Orot. Thank you, Rabbi Grau, for coming. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. Okay, so let's learn a little bit about you uh, first. Where are you from and talk to us about your journey, how you made it to Toronto.
1: Sure. Great question. Um, I grew up in New York. Uh, I was a typical New Yorker in many ways. I uh, went to elementary school, high school in New York, in the New York metropolitan area. After high school, I went to Gush to Yeshvat for two years, uh, following which I returned back to New York and went to Yeshiva University, went to YU. I studied um, history and was very involved in learning in YU. I was a Talmud of Rav Shechter for many, many years. I was in Rav Shechter Shir. And was very very close with him uh, and uh, when I graduated YU I was at a little bit of a crossroads as to where to go and what to do I wanted to stay in yeshiva and continue learning and I stayed in smicha and was learning full time but uh, my father was a uh, is a lawyer and uh, felt that uh I should go to law school as a backup, in case all uh, the Vravanas so will kind of thing quite work out. You never know where life will take you. So I ended up starting in law school. I actually was in the night a night program at uh, Fordham Law School, and I had night classes uh, starting from six o'clock at night. So my schedule for about four years was I was learning full-time during the day until around uh, five o'clock, and then I would uh, run downtown and then start law school and go from law school from six to 10 in class and uh, graduated law school, but uh, all the while really had my heart and my energies in Chinuch and in Rabbanus. I took my first job at Ramaz, which was a high school in Manhattan, uh, taught there what I thought was going to be for a year or two, ended up staying there for nine years, in between ended up getting my doctorate in education, meeting my wife, getting married, um, becoming uh, the rabbi at uh, assistant and the associate and rabbi of... Fifth Avenue Synagogue, and uh, eventually switched over and became the assistant principal at Central, which is Wahyu's High School for Girls. And about seven years ago, uh, two individuals by the name of Steve Meyer and Michael Axe uh, came, uh, inviting me to come to Toronto, and along with the Kashitsky family and others, they hired me to become the Rosh shiva at uh, Orchaim and uh, Ol I and moved with my entire family to Toronto, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey ever since.
0: Wow, that sounds like a fascinating biography, and of course, varied. And then I'm sure you bring all of those skills to your work at um, at Benaki Schools. So maybe you can describe for us a little bit about the challenges. And, and some of the things that you did as you kind of took the helm of the B'nai schools in Toronto? What were some of the things that you saw, okay, these are, are, are the issues that I need to attack first, and how did you accomplish them?
1: Well, uh, great question. It uh, requires me to think back already seven years ago. But um, I, I would say um, when I got to Toronto, one of the first... Um, issues that I was confronted with was I would talk to parents or talk to families about why they send their kids to Archaim or why they send their kids to Opana. And most of the answers that I received were, well, where else should I send my kids? You know, Hashkafically, this is where we fit in. We're religious Zionist or, you know, we are part of the larger YU community or we're modern Orthodox and, you know, this is where we belong. And I was very disturbed by those answers because to me, those answers didn't speak towards any qualities that the school had. I think the school has had an incredible storied existence. The school's been around for almost 45 years. And I think that they had incredible highs. And for many, many, many years over that time period, the school was incredibly successful and did very well. And for whatever reason, when I came here, it was during a period of transition, and it was going through a little bit of a weak period. Enrollment was down. Energy around the schools was not that excited. Uh, and people were saying, you know, like, I'm uh, not so excited about coming. And my answer to people was that the reason you should want to come to high is because it's a great school. It's because they have incredible uh, learning. It's because they have wonderful rebellion, because they care about their talmidim. You know, there's great student support. There are great opportunities for enrichment. There are varied classes. Uh, there's uh, an, an amazing... Uh, courses that are offered in STEM. People want to come to Opana because of the programs, the activities, the learning, the enrichment, the arts, the science. You know, all of these should be the reasons why you want to come to Opana. They shouldn't be because of Hashkafic uh, affiliations or uh, orientations. And I think changing that perception, which had a lot to do with changing the product, was my first challenge. It was about how can we make the schools in my opinion, incredibly um, uh, successful academically uh, from a guidance perspective, social emotional guidance, as well as just offering incredible enrichment and a phenomenal educational product, such that everyone wants to come to Orchayim and come to Opana, not because they hashkafically fit or because it fits within their world view, but because they want to be in a great school. And The reason they want to be there is because it's such a great school. So my number one priority was to uh, change the school academically um, and really make it an incredible educational institution so that everyone wanted to be there for the academics, for the learning for the enrichment, for what the courses and classes offered uh, and and if it happened to fit hushkafically and philosophically where they were at religiously then okay, sounds good as well, but the reason they wanted to be there was because it was a great school so you wanted
0: to make it basically an excellent academic institution, a destination that people wanted to go to, and almost a corollary of that was going to be that this aligns with my religious affiliations. Exactly.
1: I didn't want the reason the kids to came to the school to be because they it checks a box in the the Hashkafic continuum uh, whereby they fit into this mode hashkafically, and that's why they're going, because that's not a choice to make. They're not coming to the schools because it's a great school. So they're coming to the schools because they have no choice. I want them to come to the schools because it's an incredible school. So how
0: do you accomplish that? That's the vision. How do you, on the ground, accomplish that?
1: First and foremost, you got to work with your teachers and your faculty. You have to, first and foremost, make sure that you have an incredible faculty. Uh, the schools have always had great teachers at different points, and they've sort of gone through ups and downs. But, um, uh, and, and I'm not saying this to disparage any previous administration or any previous teachers or anything like that but you have to invest in your teachers and make sure your teachers are the best i would say in the last uh, uh since i came to today well over 50% of the faculty have turned over uh and uh and uh, have have changes have been made and i think today we have by far an incredibly talented group of teachers and administrators who are in the school who are really, really exceptional in their field and in what they do, and even the group of rebbeim who we have are incredibly talented, incredibly devoted to our talmidim, uh, the boys and the girls. But first and foremost, it's about getting the right people in the school and making sure you have the right team of administrators and teachers. Uh, and if you have that, then you know you're half of the way there in terms of really creating an incredible school.
0: And was with any change, you know, sometimes there's resistance to change, was there any resistance either from um, teachers, parents or students, I could imagine, um, by the sounds of it, perhaps academically it became a little bit more challenging. Uh, were there any was there any resistance and how did you navigate that?
1: Great question. So I would say, from a board and lay leadership perspective, I had an incredible amount of support. I had uh, for my first few years in and up until now, but it's changed you know a few times. Uh, an incredible president. I started off with a president who had the utmost confidence in me and supported me in any change that I wanted to make and anything I needed to do, combined with the chairman, the two of them worked together, my president and my chairman. The two of them were incredibly supportive and really get credit for all the changes and all the successes that we've had in what they did. We had incredible support from our donors uh, and uh, and financial support to be able to make Many of these changes, many of them never would have been possible, but for the financial support that we had. So from a lay leadership perspective, both in terms of board members and donors, the support was absolutely incredible. And they get the credit for all of the success that we had. Um, parents were very supportive because they saw great changes happening and they were very happy with what they saw. I would say the greatest pushback actually came in many ways from students um, who were used to certain traditions and certain um, ways uh, in which the school ran and things that were allowed that all of a sudden were changing. Uh, and, uh, you know, students are sometimes resistant to changes uh, if they're not part of the process, and we tried to make them as part of the process as we could. But the initial years, there was a fair amount of pushback uh, from some students around, we've been doing this for so many years. This is an Archimedes tradition. This is an Opana tradition. Why are we changing this? And, you know, what was wrong with what was happening beforehand? And a lot of it had to do with a lack of seriousness in the context of, uh, classes and certain academic traditions or school traditions that did not promote uh, a strong learning environment, but was much more about fun and games. And we were much more focused on creating an excellent school and making sure that the school was incredible, uh, and the fun Fun and games was important, and we wanted kids to be happy, but there were greater values that uh, we needed to promote that may came, have come at the expense of fun and games at times.
0: Right. I could see that being a challenge for students who aren't quite prepared to buckle down when things you know, all of a sudden started getting a little bit more serious. Correct. How do you juggle, I think Ulpana uh, and Orheim are unique in that basically you have a boy's and a girl's school that are, are separate, um, but there's kind of a common rubric. How do you navigate that,
1: um, the management basically, of those two schools? So for me, it's very challenging. And for my director of education, it's also challenging because we go back and forth between the two schools. But one of the changes that I made was I tried to institute a um, uh, an administrative team that is specific and local to each campus meaning it used to be that the administration really traveled back and forth between the two schools um, and as a result you think about it it means that they're spending a maximum of two days a week in any one school figuring that there are also meetings that happen outside of school and things that go on you know with parents and other things which is very hard to run a school in that context so the first change that we made was we made sure that there are our you know, that there's an assistant principal at Archaim, there's an assistant principal at Opana. They're campus specific individuals who spend their entire day in the campus and they're in charge of running the campus. The difficulty for me and the challenge for me is that I'm really not able to spend that much of my time with students and really, you know, in each campus. Uh, spending time personally sitting in on classes and with teachers. Um, I teach myself. I give a Gemara shir at Orchayim. I teach one or two classes at Opana. And for me, that's a great opportunity to spend time with the students who are in my class and to spend time you know, there in each campus. But the vast majority of my time is spent institutionally hiring, uh, recruiting teachers, um, meeting with community members, uh, fundraising, Community engagement, focusing on admissions, focusing on, um, you know, larger community initiatives that help Archayim, help Opana. Um, and for me personally, it is a challenge running back and forth and all over the place. But as a result, I've tried to do my best to hire the right people who can really make sure that they're there day in, day out in the campus, on the ground, with the students, with the teachers, running everything. And I'm obviously very closely in touch with them all the time to keep my finger on the pulse of everything that happens and make sure that everything is going smoothly.
0: Sounds like a lot on your plate.
1: Baruch Hashem. <laughs> I'm always exciting and thank
0: God. So let's um, look at things from a more macro perspective for a second, if we can. What are some of the challenges, do you think, in terms of, and you, you could speak uh, about, you know, the B'nai Akiva schools or, or maybe even from a, from a higher perspective, what are some of the challenges that you see um, perhaps from an administrative perspective, or even uh, on an educational level, that that schools in you know
1: Toronto or North America in general are encountering now. I think the single greatest challenge that schools in North America are encountering, and specifically in Toronto, is the cost of tuition and the cost of Jewish education. Um, I, I think that's far and away uh, the greatest challenge. Um, there's very little schools can do. To significantly decrease the costs, a little bit on the, around the edges here and there, there are small areas. But bottom line, we operate a system of a dual curriculum, um, where uh, there are, uh, the majority of our costs are, fis- are fixed costs, in which eighty percent plus are you know specific to staffing teacher costs teacher salaries um all of our teachers and all of our schools are unionized and you know the salaries are set on scale based on what teachers need to live and based on what the cost of living is in toronto and it's very much reasonable and uh you know teachers and educators uh you know deserve to make and belong and need to make uh, a salary need to make a living need to be able to support their families and as a result, without getting support from the federal government, without getting any uh, uh, support uh, outside of just tuition and fundraising, uh, it's incredibly difficult uh, for families to afford tuition. And uh, the cost of living in Toronto and the cost of having Toronto is incredibly, in, you know, uh, difficult to sustain, given the current tuition model. And, um, you know there are lots of solutions that have been suggested over the years and lots of different people have tried lots of different things but in my opinion the single greatest solution is a is a major fund uh that is supported by the community but you know the Jewish community across the board uh, of fundraising dollars that go towards supporting us uh, middle income families who are pinched in significant ways but also supporting uh tuition scholarships that increase more and more and more every single year. So by far, in my opinion, on a macro level, the greatest challenge that we are being hit with is tuition and the ability of families to afford tuition.
0: So let's break this down a little bit. You know, myself as a parent um, of kids in school, what is the reason why tuition is so expensive? That's a question that a lot of parents have. I think that, you know, I I know the answer and obviously you know the answer too, but, but explain to us what the issue is.
1: So I'll use Archim and Opana as an example because it's what I'm most familiar with. And I think that it will help illustrate it, uh, you know, in a very, very specific way. Let's take uh, Archim Opana. So we are a relatively speaking, a small school. When I got here uh, seven years ago, we had uh, only, we had 190 kids between both schools. Uh, now we have almost 300 kids. So we've grown quite a bit in the last six years. But we're still relatively a small school and we operate two schools, an old boys school and an old girls school. And we don't have any co-ed classes. So all of our classes are separate between boys and girls. At the same time, all of our students are going to graduate with an Ontario Secondary Schools diploma. And we need to offer them all the classes that they need to take in order to graduate with an Ontario Secondary Schools diploma. So that means that when you get to grade 11 or grade 12, for example, we want to offer all the options that they want to be able to take. So that means that if I'm a student who is focused on science and math, and I want to be able to excel in science and math and go into a university program where I can be successful in the science and math, it means that I want to take biology, chemistry, physics, I want to take calculus, I want to take advanced functions, I want to take data management, I want to be able to take all these math and science classes. The problem is, is that we don't have co-ed classes, so it means we need to run these classes whether there are five kids in the class or ten kids in the class or twenty kids in the class. Problem is, that I have to pay the teacher the same thing whether a teacher is teaching a class of 20 students or a class of 10 students. Now, it's much better in that in Chaim or Opana, you'll come to the class and you'll be in a smaller class because that's the nature of the reality. But it means that our teacher costs are incredibly high as a small Jewish day school. If we operated in a different environment in which we had 25 students per class and there was one teacher on 25 students, then your cost model can be more effective. But given where we are at, and the number of courses that we need to offer, and the 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 cost to pay a teacher to teach that class, it's an incredibly difficult model to run from a financial perspective because you're paying so much per student. Your per student cost for teachers is incredibly high. The vast majority of our expenses as a school are teacher salaries. A lot of people like to point towards bloated administrative structures or lots of administrators. Uh, in our case, all of our administrators actually teach and teach a fair load. Uh, you know, it may surprise people, but I myself teach three classes, uh, three full classes, which is a very, very large amount, given my position. And our director of education, he teaches, you know, some years four or five classes Um we try to use technology and blended models, both for academic reasons as well as, you know, has other benefits associated with it, but in the end of the day, it's not the same. The best way to teach a class is to have a teacher, students sitting in a class. Students need to learn online education because at the end of the day, any student who's going on to university or graduate school is going to be confronted with online education. And if we have a responsibility to our students to give them some online classes, and to expose them to online education, so they become proficient at it. But in the end of the day, that's only a small piece of it. The majority of their education is going to be students with teachers, and that's what costs so much money.
0: Right. I think I read somewhere that the the, the provincial government's cost per student for a public school is between twenty five and thirty thousand dollars, which is around, I guess, what tuition is. So so that, that's what the government's paying, and so people don't realize, well, public school is free, quote-unquote, right. right? But it's not free, right? That's obviously what right. the government pays.
1: But think about the fact that that's what the government pays, and they're not paying for a dual curriculum. School day ends much earlier, okay? They don't have to feel out. They don't have Shabbatonim. They don't have all the programs and the extracurricular or co-curricular activities that we have, um, but yet at the same time, they're spending more per student than what we're spending. Uh, I, I can't speak for all schools, but I can tell you that for our Chaim in particular, we take the number of students that we have, multiply that by our tuition, and that's our cost. That's our budget. We don't charge more per family than is absolutely necessary, and we try to keep costs as low as possible, and every single year, Our budget goes through a strict review in which we go line by line through every item and look at every possible way where we can find cost savings, no matter how small that is. Every penny that we spend is tracked. There's an incredible amount of fiduciary responsibility associated with our schools to make sure that literally every penny is tracked very closely. And um we do everything we can to keep our costs lower. And one of the things that we did a few years ago was we created something that we called an unconditional subsidy, where we basically took our tuition, which at the time was just about $25,000, and we basically said to families that if you can't afford tuition, even though the cost to educate your child is $25,000, we're going to allow you to opt into what we call an unconditional subsidy without having to apply to Federation through the tuition subsidy program and basically say that you need to take this subsidy of up to $5,000, $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, $4,000, you name the number. It is subsidy. It is scholarship. Our families know that we then have to fundraise in order to cover that shortfall. We've had a few families that have stepped forward to be able to really help support this initiative and make this initiative successful. Uh, But in the end of the day, this is something we've offered to our families to try to help ease the burden, particularly for middle-income families, who find it challenging.
0: Right. I think that's obviously the point. I mean, just in my school alone within the past year, I think around five families have left, the city have moved away for this being the main reason. Obviously, there's a few factors in there as well in terms of the cost of living in the city, uh, housing, and et cetera. But, but for the most part, it was feeling a sense of uh, they just can't get ahead. And in fact, they're behind each year. They, they go into debt a little bit more and more. So uh, on the one hand, there's this school's dilemma, which you've enumerated quite well. On the other hand, it's the parents who are literally going into debt each year. And it seems like it's a problem with no solution.
1: It is. Listen, if you move to Cleveland or if you move to Memphis and you can afford a beautiful house for a few hundred thousand dollars, um, it's a big trade-off and it makes a big difference. It does. Uh, the city of Toronto is an incredible city and it offers unbelievable, uh, benefits. But in order for this city to to stay and remain strong Jewishly, uh, and remain you know a leader in North America within the Jewish world uh, we need to community-wise do a better job of finding more solutions to this tuition issue and it comes from finding additional funders who are not really funding Jewish education right now and many of them are not even giving Jewishly as much as they should and trying to work together to convince them that they need to help support the Jewish community and help support tuition across all day schools
0: and so so it sounds like that's the answer, is trying to find philanthropists who who are willing to, to donate. And is that a challenging argument to make, or you've had some success?
1: Look, the Federation right now is quietly involved in trying to raise money towards a uh, a mega fund that uh, they're working on. I think they recognize, and I give Adam Minsky, who's the head, an incredible amount of credit for recognizing the need To help support Jewish day schools Um, uh, and uh, they are working very very hard with a few leaders who are behind this at trying to appeal to uh, philanthropists across the city and uh, pitch them on the importance of supporting Jewish day schools I think all of us throughout the community who benefit from Jewish day schools need to you know turn to federation and say how can we help what can we do to help we'd like to help we'd like to uh, pitch in you know tell us what you need from us we're in and I think together, we all need to sort of work in all avenues to try to promote this campaign and work with Federation to help them to achieve their goals.
0: So it's an all-hands-on-deck strategy.
1: That's mine. Yep. That's what I believe. Um, so l- let's kind
0: of shift focus a little bit to the student perspective and, and any challenges... Uh, that, that students in, you know, 2019 might be encountering. What do you see as challenges? I know there's smartphones and, uh, I don't know. I wonder if there's, uh, there's probably a host of issues that come along with that. I've heard of, I've read in, in the States about something called a half Shabbos where, y- y- you know, uh, I don't know, kids feel a little bit too attached to their phones. I, I assume there's a host of issues that, that are challenging. Any of them in particular that you think, um, are, are really pressing issues?
1: Absolutely. I think that there are two major challenges that are impacting uh, our community, but it's not just our community. I think it's across, uh, it's not even North America, it's across the world. I think uh, levels of depression uh, and social, emotional needs, levels of anxiety, is an incredible challenge. Uh, Adolescents today, starting from, um, the, the, it gets younger and younger, but certainly starting from middle school up, um, are dealing with incredible amounts of anxiety. They are uh, um, dealing with uh, more stress, less self-confidence, less of a sense of self-worth, less of a sense of belonging. They're having more social issues. They're more challenged in terms of friends, feeling good about themselves and finding their place. And uh I think that's an outgrowth of 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 many reasons. I think this technology, the smartphones, social media, uh Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all of these things obviously play a role in it, as do others. Um and um and I think that's an incredible challenge of our generation. I can tell you that as a school, when I first got here, we had one mental health professional who split her time between our Haim and Opana and who was part-time at that. Uh, She was wonderful, very talented, uh, but she basically spent one day a week at both schools, at each school, um, seeing cases as they came up. And now, today, we have a whole team of mental health professionals who work in the school and who are there to help our students um, and help with levels of anxiety and stress and uh, help them to be successful and give them the tools necessary to succeed because the needs have become so great. I think that's challenge number one. I think a second incredible challenge is around substance abuse. Uh, And I don't think that this is unique to Orchaim or Pana or other yeshivot uh, that are, you know, uh, more to the right or more to the left, religiously, politically, um, uh, you know, I don't think it's unique to any location. I think that uh, this exists in the New York metropolitan area and it exists all throughout North America where um, substance abuse is a, a real challenge. I think they're very much related and I think it's an outgrowth of a lot of the depression, and a lot of the anxiety, but I think it's a challenge that I think communities in general have not dealt with. I think that there's an incredible amount of drinking that goes on, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, drinking, obviously, specifically uh, um, uh, adolescents I'm talking about and people who are underage uh, around Simchus Torah, around Purim. I think that a lot of that is encouraged by our community still. I think that our community doesn't recognize the dangers associated with it. Um, I think that, uh, I'll say something that's not necessarily popular, there's a culture in our community of, uh, of students that you know that rent limousines on Purim and the limousines are paid for by institutions and alcohol is flowing throughout and they go around to different houses and they do incredible mitzvahs and they collect an incredible amount of staka and it's a wonderful initiative and it's exciting and people like it when the kids come into their houses and it's Lebedic and there's dancing and there's learning and it's a wonderful thing. But at the same time, we're encouraging underage drinking and we're encouraging underage uh, alcohol abuse. And loa leno, I hope it doesn't happen, but I fear for a tragedy that may happen at some point because of it. And I just think it's an incredibly irresponsible activity that our community not only condones it, but in many ways encourages it and allows for underage drinking in a public uh, way that's uncontrolled and unsupervised. And I hope nothing bad comes of it, but I've seen too many tragedies in too many communities across North America and around the world from drinking that goes on on Purim, uh, and uh, and I think it's very dangerous. I think with the legalization of marijuana that's happened in Toronto, I fear for how that's going to impact on our youth. Many, many studies have showed that um, there are lasting uh, uh, unfortunate results for youth, adolescent brain development who are involved in marijuana use, and as it becomes much more closely associated with edibles, with brownies and gummy bears, and I fear for it slowly seeping into kiddishes and slowly seeping into the culture uh, in the in the Torah world around us and in Shabbos and Yantif, and I think that's an incredible challenge uh, associated with uh, that legalization and the fact that it's going to become much more ubiquitous all around us. So there are lots of challenges in our generation, and there are lots of different things we could talk about. But to me, mental health and substance abuse are two real challenges that our entire city needs to recognize uh, is an issue that's not unique to any age group, any specific school, any Hashgraphic background, or any demographic. It exists everywhere.
0: It's interesting that you say that. I'll just mention from a COR perspective, you know, we had, um, a couple of applications actually from companies that were making medicinal marijuana. They wanted certification for it. And, um, we, we rejected the application and it was kind of somewhat high profile. The newspapers covered it. And even though there are certifiers, uh, in the states that, that did certify the product, um, medicinal marijuana only, uh, from what I hear, we, we, you know rejected it for a few reasons one of which was we didn't want to give the imprimatur of of saying oh this has a cor on it you know this is okay you know revy i'm coming to school you see the cor says it's okay so that was that was i mean there were a few factors involved but but that that was one of them
1: okay so i I applaud the decision based on that
0: um and how do we address those are obviously very serious and compelling issues how do we address those as a community
1: Look, I think the first thing is not to hide behind it and to recognize that there's nothing wrong with uh, um, um, admitting that we need to work together as a community and we need to work together on these challenges. We shouldn't deny that they exist. We shouldn't pretend that our schools or our yeshivot or our day schools are um, immune to these. We have to recognize that our kids are going to have these challenges and uh these social-emotional uh, concerns and the pull of substances is going to be very much pervasive within our world. And the more that the yeshiva world and that our shuls and our schools accept this and, um, and don't hide from it and recognize that it's nothing to be embarrassed about if a child is suffering or struggling with this, then the sooner we'll get help and the sooner we'll come together as a community and put certain... Um, safeguards in place that will protect against it. You know, I would love for more parents to decide collectively that they're not going to, you know, give alcohol to underage, uh, kids, uh, on Purim, uh, and, uh, and on Simchas Torah. I would love for more yeshivot and more rebellion to start, uh, promoting publicly and start publicly saying, that we shouldn't be allowing our kids to drink as much as they do. Uh, you know, I would love for people to start to recognize publicly that um, emotional distress and anxiety is a real health concern, and it's not something that we should be embarrassed about, and it's not something that should have a stigma associated with it, and it's something that we should try to help and seek help for uh, and not deny its existence. Um, I think we need to be more open and honest with each other about it.
0: Maybe we can shift gears and talk about the land of Israel for a second. I know obviously that is an area where the B'nai Akiva schools have a focus that perhaps some of the other schools may not have. What is the relationship um, to Eretz Israel in in the schools? And and also, uh, maybe a second question, but in terms of that year in Israel or two years in Israel post-high school, how do you find that your graduates um, navigate that situation and succeed? And I guess some of them end up making Aliyah and what have you.
1: For sure. So I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a school in North America that is more Zionistic and has a greater percentage of its alumni who have made Aliyah than our Chaim and Opana. Uh, over the last 45 plus years of the school, um, uh, almost 30% of our alumni have made Aliyah, which is a staggering number considering the small school. Much of that has to do with uh, many of the Shlichim uh, that uh, have come through the doors of uh, our schools, uh, over the course of uh, these 45 you know, plus years. Uh, and we've even tried to increase that in many ways in recent years. Um, we, uh, Our schools in particular have a program in grade 10 where we allow students to go to Israel for a month and integrate actually into an Israeli high school. Uh, it's a small program for a small number of students who are interested in it, but we very much promote it. We've run almost every year in the Jerusalem Marathon, a group of students uh, as a school, as a group, We've tried to encourage different experiences in Israel. we participate participated in the Weizmann Safe Competition, uh, which is a physics uh, competition that our students have participated in, in which we send a group of students to Israel every year for that. Virtually every year we've had a student who's competed in the Chidol HaTanach uh, in Israel. There are many, 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 many closely aligned institutional affiliations between Archaimed Opana and schools in Israel and programs in Israel, which we promote actively, uh, all as a way of demonstrating, showing the relationship between uh, the two, um, and I think it's that's had a large role in uh, the impact on Aliyah. Most of our school, our students, by far, the vast, vast majority, go to spend it a year in Israel after they graduate. Uh, they go to yeshivot, they go to seminaries. Um, honestly, that has become a challenge in recent years because the cost of those yeshivot and seminaries is so high. And the Canadian dollar has not been so great in the last few years. They all charge either in American dollars or in Shkalim. But either way, the cost has increased for our students. And uh, that's been a very, very hard uh, uh, and difficult um, initiative to continue to maintain among all of our students simply because there are so many families who simply can't afford it. And unfortunately, it's become a luxury that while the majority, the vast majority are still going, every year there are families who don't go and can't spend a year in Israel because the costs are just too high.
0: Right. I mean, I've heard that costs can, can be somewhere between thirty $1,000 U.S. for the year. And, you know, if we're Navigating the challenge about paying 25,000 Canadians, so 30,000 U.S. is going to be even more challenging.
1: And not only that, you're 100% right it is, and not only that, but you have to also remember that if you're American and uh, you're going to Israel for the year, so you're thinking about what university is going to cost in America, or if you're going to YU or Stern, uh, and you're going through the Joint Israel Program, so you'll justify it based on the fact that I'll get a full year of credit... And it will cost less than YU or Stern will cost anyway. So my year in Israel, while very expensive, is still costing me less than it will cost me if I went straight to YU or straight to Stern, or even if I stayed in America and went to university in America, the majority of the universities are more expensive anyway. So I'll justify it in that way. In Canada where many of the students plan to go to University of Toronto or York University or Ryerson or, you know, local universities here, they're comparing now apples and oranges because the cost of university is far less than what it would cost them to go to Israel for the years. Even if they're getting credit for the year in Israel, it's still costing significantly more and you're right. It's costing them more than it will cost them for high school. And they have trouble paying for high school. And there are, thanks to Federation and thanks to uh, the systems that have been created, a significant amount of scholarships available for students who are going to high school here in Toronto. Those same scholarships don't exist for kids who are going to Israel for the year. And then add in the U.S. dollar versus Canadian dollar exchange, and it becomes a really, really difficult piece of the puzzle.
0: But do you find that putting the money issue aside for a second that it is something that affects the graduates, they come back on a higher level uh, more engaged Uh, I think it's an
1: incredible experience, absolutely I think if you can afford it and you can find a way to make it work, I think it's an incredible experience. It's a year of religious growth. It's a year of spiritual growth. It's a year of just maturity in general. Many of them stay for a second year. Some of them, particularly our students, will decide to stay for even longer. Or some of them will decide to do university in Israel, will decide to stay for Hesder or do Sheirut Lumi or join the army, uh, all of which is common among many of our students. But even if you're just going for a year or for two years, it's an absolutely incredible initiative that I wish more people had the ability to take uh, advantage of. For the students that come back,
0: what is your experience with the um, issues related to going to university here on campus? You know, we all read things that are seem somewhat troubling, both from an anti-Semitic or anti-Israel perspective, and then the the religious uh, questions and compromises that some students feel like they have to make. How, in your experience, have have students been able to... Grapple with that.
1: So, I think it's a challenge, and I think that, uh, JLIC, which is run by Rabbi Aaron Greenberg, and, um, and, uh, the Beit Midrash Zechron Dov, which is run by Rabbi Turchiner, uh, both serve an incredibly important role in helping university students to navigate these challenges. JLIC, first of all, at Rebecca Greenberg, uh, runs around between different campuses. They run programs. They run shiurim. There are learning initiatives. There are social programs, all sorts of different things to help the Orthodox community here in Toronto uh, maintain a close uh, connection and relationship both to their uh, Torah roots and to their mitzvot observance but also stay connected to each other helps to promote shidduchim among them uh, the Beit Midrash Zechron Dov which has both a men's Beit Midrash program and a women's Beit Midrash program both of which have important um uh, uh programs for university students, uh, encourage them to come back to the Beit Midrash, encourage them to be involved in learning, and have many, many students who have succeeded and have gained from their programs. Uh, Rabbi Turchiner uh, does a wonderful job of really focusing so much of his effort and his time and his Beit Midrash on university students, many of whom learn in Archaim uh, every single day and have shiurim at Archaim all the time, and um and these programs are working towards trying to help these students to come back and, uh, and successfully integrate themselves in these, in these university environments and have a wonderful experiences here. You know, they don't have the benefit. We don't have the benefit of having Yeshiva University here, whereby they are able to learn morning Seder and then take university classes in the afternoon, all in one building and all under one rubric. So that's the second best that we're able to accomplish.
0: So basically what it sounds like is you're trying to create a framework where they're still together, they're still involved in Torah learning, they're still plugged in, and then they can go out with perhaps a sense of confidence to the Correct. campus. Correct.
1: That's the goal. The goal is we keep them integrated in a Torah world, in a Torah environment, in learning, in Shiurim, um, uh, connected to Eretz Israel, connected to Israel, but connected to, um, uh, you know, Toronto as a city, being successful in Toronto, through this learning environment so that when they go to university campus and college classes, they have a strong backbone.
0: Sounds like a great initiative. Maybe before um, I let you go, I can ask you one last question. I know that you're the Honorary uh, President of Mizrahi Canada. Um, Can you describe um, what that entails and what Mizrahi Canada actually does?
1: Sure. Well, I serve really just in a very uh, part-time lay leadership role, more of a ceremonial role, uh, helping to promote the ideals and the visions of Mizrahi Canada. But basically, in a few sentences, the goal of Mizrahi Canada is to promote religious Zionism throughout Canada. Uh, focused and based m- mainly in Toronto, where its center base is. The goal is to provide programs in Toronto that support and promote Datsi Tzionut, religious Zionism, bringing speakers. They run an annual Yom HaAltimut program, which is one of the largest Yom HaAltimut programs in the world. Uh, they partnered this past year with Federation, with JCC in particular, and had an incredible program in which maybe 5,000 people came during a two-day event that, uh, they ran. Um, they, uh, Rabbi Ilan Mazer, who's the national director of Mizrahi Canada, works tirelessly running programs and initiatives to try to promote uh, uh You know, a feeling and a connection to Israel uh, here in Toronto, so that I can be in Toronto, I can live in Toronto, but I can still be a Zionist and I can still be closely connected to Israel, and I can have Zionist programming. They promote uh, Torah learning that, in many ways, is Eretz Torah learning, shiurim given by some of the top rebbeim and top Torah teachers, Torah leaders in Israel, and they connect to other Mizrahi. Uh, Offices and Mizrahi um, groups in South Africa, Australia, the UK, America, and of course Israel to try to work together on promoting a joint mission, a joint vision of what religious Zionism is all about.
0: Beautiful. Sounds like um, it has a a tremendous effect on the the community here. And um, I, I you know, I just want to say on behalf of the Jewish community in Toronto, Canada, and around the world, Rabbi Seth Grauer, we are fortunate to have you as one of our leaders.
1: Thank you very much. Mizrahi does. Look, one of the other things Mizrahi does, which I should just mention, is that they help promote B'nai Akiva, which is really a youth movement, separate from B'nai Akiva schools, but closely affiliated with B'nai Akiva schools. But they help support all the initiatives that B'nai Akiva does, which is much more closely associated with the children and the kids. Moshe Mosheva Ba'ir, which is an incredible camp and you know, Camp Mosheva, helping to promote all these initiatives so that kids from the youngest age all the way up until they get to Mizrahi and they become adults are thinking about uh, Israel, Zionism, and all the ideals and values associated with that. Uh, any successes that I've ever had is all because of the team of people who I'm able to work with, and all because of the lay leaders who are committed here in Toronto. I've only been in Toronto for seven years. It's a very, very short period of time. Toronto as a community, as a religious Zionist community, but really as an Orthodox community has been around for many, many years. And it's really due to the efforts of all the people who came before me, the Roshay Yeshivot, who came before me at Orchayim and Opana, who built up our schools and who worked tirelessly and did an incredible amount of work to build the schools, to make them what they are, the leaders of Mizrahi, Rothschild in particular, who's getting close to celebrating uh, and please God, he should live and be well. May He's getting close to celebrating his hundredth birthday. Uh, all of the leaders, uh, the Kashitsky family, who does an incredible amount for our school, but our entire community, and many, many, many others uh, throughout the city, who have really done so much to provide the impetus. To allow me to be able to make some small, tiny, little contribution, uh, I wouldn't be able to do anything but for all the support of all the way leaders, all the institutions, and all the different uh, people who work so hard on behalf of the City of Toronto, including the COR. Without the COR, None of us would be able to have uh, the level of professionalism uh, connected to uh, Kashrut that we all very much rely on and depend on. So we have to thank you as much as we thank anyone.
0: Thanks for the commercial there at the end. I'm glad we got that in. And uh, again, thank you to all of those leaders and to yourself, Rabbi Seth Grauer. Thank you for coming on the CoreCast. Pleasure. Well, that's our show for today. I know, so hard to say goodbye. So if you enjoyed the Corecast, you can find an archive of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on the COR website at cor.ca. See you next time on the Corecast.